The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code GUARDIAN to get 10% off. The Guardian Books Podcast with Claire Armistead. As the season of literary log-rolling draws to its close, we take a satirical look at eight of the big books of the year with The Guardian's John Crace and try to digest what they reveal about the state we're in at the end of 2013. Today's digested read is Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath, subtitled Underdogs, Misfits and the Art of Battling Giants in which the American author of pop science bestsellers such as The Tipping Point and Blink takes the side of evolution's little big guys. In the heart of ancient Palestine stood a six-foot-nine-inch giant. Against him was a five-foot-nothing midget, No one gave the midget a prayer. The giant's name was Goliath. The midget's name was David. You might have read about their battle in the Old Testament, but the Bible got it wrong. David was not the underdog. Most people make assumptions about power and jump to ridiculous conclusions. Who does not think the country with the most men and weaponry will automatically win a war? Not counting those of you who lived through Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Take the American invasion of Grenada. Although Grenada was much the smaller country, it actually held all the aces. Had Grenada played its cards just a little better, the U.S. would have been wiped off the face of the earth. Vivek Ranadive decided to coach his daughter's basketball team. Vivek realized that most coaches had made the simple error of packing their teams with players who were at least 6 foot 7 inch. His daughter's friends were 5 feet 3 inch. Vivek understood his team could run through the legs of the opposition, before climbing onto each other's shoulders to score a slam dunk. They beat the Boston Celtics 89-12 in their dreams. Can you have too much money? Personally, I don't think you can, or I would have stopped chancing my arm with counterintuitive anecdotes long ago. But research shows you can. Jim was very happy when he didn't have much money. Now he's a top Hollywood producer and not very happy. See what I mean? Richard is dyslexic. Most people would consider it to be a disadvantage. But Richard worked very hard, got a bit lucky, and founded his virgin empire. Richard could not have done this had he not been dyslexic. Having dyslexia is actually a blessing, and anyone who has the condition and has not become a billionaire should be ashamed. Learning to understand when your disadvantage is an advantage and not a disadvantage can be tricky. Katie was devastated when her entire family was wiped out in an air crash. Then she realized that at least she was alive and would inherit all the money. She went on to become a moderately successful real estate agent in Florida. Terry was a large trout in a North American lake. After graduating top of the class from the lake's high school, Terry decided to travel to the ocean to make his fortune. He got gobbled up by Thomas the Tuna. Sometimes it really is better to be a big fish in a little pond rather than a little fish in a big pond. In 1963, Martin Luther King went to Birmingham, Alabama. Martin Luther King was black. Birmingham, Alabama was known to be the most racist city in the USA. Therefore, Birmingham, Alabama was not a safe place for Martin Luther King. 
but Martin Luther King went anyway. If Martin Luther King had been white, no one would have noticed his presence in Birmingham, Alabama. But because Martin Luther King had the courage to be black, and he did go to Birmingham, Alabama, the civil rights movement made significant progress. There was once a boy who looked a bit different. We'll call him Leo Sayre, because that's his name. Some people laughed at Leo because he had silly hair. Others didn't want to be his friend because he was always telling them that he was right and they were wrong. Leo decided to use his odd hair and off-putting mannerisms to his advantage and changed his name to Malcolm. Malcolm wrote a book telling people how everything they knew was wrong. It became a bestseller. So Malcolm wrote another book just the same, and another. He even rewrote Aesop's fables. Still, no one noticed. Malcolm cultivated a persona of being an outsider while earning huge amounts of money from banks, tobacco, and pharmaceutical companies. Malcolm earns more for a one-hour talk than you will earn in a year. So who is laughing now? Digested read. Digested. You make me feel like snoring. How's that for telling him? Well, here in the studio to defend his scurrilous attack is John Crace in person. For the defence, we've called Oliver Berkman, Guardian columnist and author of books including The Antidote Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. We hope that's not a bad sign. Oliver, tell us a bit about Malcolm Gladwell. Why, why is he so important at this moment? I think he has really been the creator of a completely new uh, genre in, in, in publishing to, to, to some extent, and um, perhaps even partly the rescue or the temporary rescue anyway of a, of a troubled uh, industry. These books, which started with the, the tipping point a long time ago now, they're pretty intellectual books on, on one level, but they're also incredibly well-told stories and narratives. And what they also have is this thing that publishers like to refer to as a strong takeaway. There is a sense that, you know, you can use the information therein, but you're not actually buying a kind of uh, embarrassing self-help book. You're, you're reading about ideas and, and, and finding ways in which they can apply to your life. And there are a huge number of sort of imitators and people who don't do it anywhere near as well and a few people who do do it almost as well. So it's just been a sort of massive uh, phenomenon. What did you learn from this? I mean, I think it's a really, really good book. I think it may be uh, his best one, personally. And this is not to say that somebody of his stature shouldn't get taken down a peg or two by John Crace. But I think that the, the point about this book is that it's making the case that in, in certain interesting, exceptional cases, in a whole range of domains, what looks like weakness can actually be strength. So some of these might strike you as quite well known, you know, the idea that guerrilla warfare can often outwit very, very strong but less nimble armies. Others of them are much more counterintuitive, you know, the discussion of the idea that in certain conditions, dyslexia can be a beneficial sort of a disadvantage to have in interesting respects. And I think it's really fascinating. There's been an interesting kind of critical backlash in certain quarters among certain professional scientists and critics, not, I think, among most readers who I think get exactly what he's doing. But there's been a certain kind of backlash that sort of annoys me. I can talk about that if you want. I kind of felt that um, with this book, there was a slight sense of Malcolm Gladwell scraping around for another set of counterintuitive arguments to sort of kind of present because he is very marketable he does write extremely well 
I mean, I kind of like his presentation and his early books were good, but this one to me had a slightly kind of tired, slightly laboured feel. There were some bits that I thought were quite good, but I mean, I think the bit about, you know, that you were talking about guerrilla warfare, I mean, I think that anyone who remembers kind of Vietnam or any of the Afghan conflicts, I mean, this is not going to be news. I mean, the fact is that nobody has ever won in Afghanistan and they've been trying for God knows how long. And for Gladwell, this is a kind of a huge piece of news and something that's counterintuitive. I don't think it really is. And he's sort of caught himself in a trap of being a sort of guru about things now. And there is a sense, I think, also in which he tries to have it both ways. He tries to present himself as a sort of a liberal, a man slightly on the outside, saying things that nobody really knows. And yet he earns a fortune giving kind of corporate talks to banks, tobacco companies and pharmaceutical companies. So he's very much a kind of corporate millionaire himself. Oliver, defend. (laughs) Well, the the first point there, that things are presented as counterintuitive that are not, this is something that that crops up quite a bit in some of the less welcoming criticism of of, of his work. A lot of those critics, not John, uh, want to have it both ways. They want to say, this isn't counterintuitive, it's obviously true. And then they also want to say, uh, it's not accurate, you can't have them both. I think the key to understanding what he's doing is that what an archetypal Gladwell book says is, you know, you think the world is, is, is this way. Actually, it is usually that way, but in a certain set of exceptional cases, it's the other way. And so let's try and understand what the conditions might be where those exceptions apply. So, for example, the, the warfare example he gives in David and Goliath is about this idea that the British army did so badly in Northern Ireland because they failed to understand that they needed some sense of legitimacy on the part of the people they were in some ways opposed to or trying to create order amongst rather than just, you know, using overpowering force and fear and intimidation. I think that's an interesting idea. You don't have to think it's an interesting idea. Obviously, that's, you know, a matter of of taste and what you happen to have read in the past. I think the much more interesting and, to me, aggravating side of the critique is this idea that basically a few psychologists and others have come along and said, most of the time, dyslexia isn't a beneficial thing to, to have, or most of the time, the, the most powerful armies do win. And, I, and in those cases, I just think you have to sort of tear your hair out a bit and say, like, well, that's his point. The point is that most of the time the world is the way you think it is, but there are really interesting exceptions. And his focus is looking at those exceptions and trying to figure out what explains those exceptions. I think it's a totally legitimate thing to be doing, not necessarily to everyone's taste. Absolutely. He's a higher journalist in a way, isn't he? He's not a psychologist. He's not a scientist. He's not an economist. Right. And I, I interviewed him not long ago for The, for the Guardian. He, he's totally upfront about that. I mean, he, there's no sense in any of these books or in his public pronouncements that, that he's trying to pass himself off as anything other than a reporter. And so it totally is higher journalism. And I think it's a kind of, I think that's actually where some of the confusion arises, because what he's doing is journalism, which uses as part of its source material, the products of academia. But that is not the same as saying that what he's doing should be seen as being a version of what 
academics are doing, yeah. So you mentioned a bit earlier the people, the imitators who perhaps weren't as good. Do you have any examples of those just to give a sense of... <laughs> You're putting me on. It is a huge market, isn't it? I mean, I could cite poor old Jonah Lehrer who got into terrible trouble for plagiarism, although there was just a sense, I had a sense that he just tried to write the book too quickly. Yeah, that was a strange case because, you know, on the one hand, you can't deny that what Jonah Lehrer was proved to have done was really bad stuff. On the other hand, you did get this kind of a hysterical reaction that, that felt to me disproportionate, even given the realness of the, the, the crimes. You know, there were two things going on. There were people who were rightly outraged that he'd cut ethical corners in a way that you absolutely mustn't. But there were also a lot of people who seemed to just object to the whole notion of these kind of intellectual adventure stories where you don't necessarily observe the controls and the uh, dull language and various other aspects of academic uh, writing. You just sort of plunge in and explore and say, you know, supposing this was true, what would the implications be? And that stuff, I think, is needs defending. I think it's, uh, it's absolutely as valid as more sort of formalised academic work. I'm being totally self-interested here because, you know, I, I try to do some of that myself. Do you think that free economics comes into the same category, John? Yes, I do. I mean, it's the same form of you thought the world was one way, but it can be another. And I completely take Oliver's point that a lot of this book is about the exceptions, but they are largely exceptions. I feel he reads far too much into the exceptions. I don't think that the exceptions are nearly as important or as interesting or as relevant as he tries to make out. Oliver, um, do you think this is really what it boils down to, is a case of a market that's matured, as he might assess it himself, and now we don't want any more of this stuff? I mean, I don't think that the sales figures suggest that at all. I think, you know, if I was going to be snarky about it, I would suggest that some of the critical, the backlash among professional psychologists and, and others has come because they're all getting into this market too. So increasingly, you know, you're getting books written by the academics for a popular audience and there's a sort of territorial issue that comes up. I think it's really good if we're going to have this kind of culture of marketable ideas that we don't completely forget that, you know, they need to be anchored to empirical reality and to research. I don't think they need to toe the line and never be speculative and never tell fascinating stories that aren't totally representative. But if part of what this is, is just a sense that, you know, we always need to remember that it's not just disconnected from the real world, then uh, I'm sure that's a very good thing. Well, thank you very much. No doubt this debate will continue along with Malcolm Gladwell's sales for a long time. Uh, <laughs> David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits and the Art of Battling Giants is published by Alan Lane. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag and drop tools and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com audio.